Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain. I've seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. So don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Pay attention to these instructions. For anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. I've always tried my best to let wisdom guide my thoughts and actions. I said to myself, I'm determined to be wise, but it didn't work. Wisdom is always distant and difficult to find. I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things. This is my conclusion. I discovered this after looking at the matter from every possible angle. Though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. But I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. One of the more difficult funerals that I ever was asked to officiate was that of a three-month-old baby that died. And um, it was out in Iowa, and uh, I loved this couple. It was their first child, and uh, we had just had a baby around the same time, and so uh, my wife and this woman had shared pregnancy together. And Anyway, I was there um, when the baby was rushed to the emergency room. He'd stop, he'd stop breathing. His name was Greg. And um, I was there at the hospital uh, when they signed the papers to turn the machines off. I, I was there at the grave. And as I think about those things, I, I, it, it still, t- to this day, is something I'll never forget. But a few months after that, I was with the mother, and she said to me that she had been at a store that week and had seen another mother uh, slap their kids silly and yelled at them, berated them. And she said to me, you know, it's hard to lose our son, but it's especially hard to understand why we had so much love for this child. And some parents are allowed to have children and they beat them silly. I remember thinking to myself, that's a hard one. That's a mystery. That seems unfair. I bring that up today because we're going to study in Ecclesiastes 7 how Solomon keeps pushing us, challenging us to face these hard realities. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, we say this almost every week, you can pull out a black Bible there that says NIV on it, and it's on page 464. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 7, 13 through 23 today before we take communion. And if you haven't been with us, we're in this series called Unsatisfied, where we're looking at the search for meaning and satisfaction that Solomon takes us on in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the message today I've entitled is Living Without All the Answers. 
living without all the answers. And so if you're following along in the notes, here's what we've been learning is that Solomon describes what he sees in this life under the sun. This world that uh, we can know by our five senses. If this world is all there is, like what do we see? What do we notice? What do we observe? And as Naomi just said in the scripture that was quoted, he looked at it from every possible angle. There was a thoroughness. He wasn't just doing a you know, casual walk in the park kind of search. And so he's been doing that. Now, uh, what I want you to see is this is a question that I want to wrestle with today that I think this text asks of us to wrestle with. How do we keep going forward when life seems unfair? How do we keep going forward when life seems unfair? You know, I, when that hits you, when it seems like so wrong, so unfair, those are the moments of truth in our lives. Those are going to be the moments when we're tempted to quit. Those are going to be the moments that we can go backwards instead of forwards. How do we go forward when life seems unfair? And why is this message important? Well, a couple reasons. One, if you live long enough, you're either going to know somebody or you're going to go through it yourself where you're going to have to deal with this up close. It's one thing to study it from a distance when it comes close. Oh, my goodness. What a difference, right? But the second thing is, you know, on our banners, we say every week this interesting phrase, we are fighting shallow Christianity in ourselves. We're, we're trying to move from a shallow relationship with God to a deepening relationship with God. And how does that happen? Sometimes it happens by facing hard realities. And so I want to talk to you about this this morning. And uh, I want to pray before we look at this passage together that God would be our teacher, Okay. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you're sensitive and concerned about every person in this room. And even if they don't feel that right now, I pray that you would come very close and you'd reveal yourself through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that we might know you better. Teach us your way, O oh God, for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. All right, so I uh, want to talk to you about living with the mysteries of life in this passage. I hope you see some of the mysteries he's going to talk about, some of the realities. And then I want to invite you to read verse 13 with me. I'll read verse 14, and then we'll start unpacking, okay? Let's read this together in that first gray box. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Now, when it says, who can straighten what he has made crooked? If you're like me, you're going, so God's immoral? God's twisted? No, that's not what the word means. The word, if you're following along, means this. It means a trouble or difficulty we wish we could change. What are those crooked things that have happened in your life that you just go, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's a trouble or difficulty that if I could change that, prevent that, stop that, get that out of my life, I would do that in a nanosecond. What are those things that are crooked? And it starts by saying something like this, consider what God has done. Consider what God has done. Now, this is interesting. It's been about 20-some verses since Solomon's even mentioned God. Remember, he's doing this thing of, what if all there is in this world is life under the sun? How do you make out with that? 
He's mentioned at times that there's life beyond the sun, and now he brings God's name back in. He says, consider what God has done. And then he says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, what does it mean to consider something? We live in a culture that skims over life, that does the quick five-second thing. If you're like me, sometimes I'm just so guilty of this. I just make quick judgments, rash judgments, and I just go over things without looking deeply. But to consider, if you're following along, means to see, reflect on deeply, and accept. To see, reflect on deeply, and accept. It means that when you look at something, you take it to heart. You let it soak in. You, uh, you don't just do the quick take. You actually say, huh, And you look at it long enough so that you can benefit from what you consider. And so this idea is what he's going to have us do. And he's been considering lots of things. And now he comes to some of these mysteries, including why does God allow some things to be crooked and not straighten them out? I mean, if I were God, right? And so if you're following along, here's what I want you to see is that he says in these verses, from God's hand come both good times and bad. From God's hand come both good times and bad. Now, I said to you earlier, I don't mean that he sends evil. That's not what I mean. That's not what the Bible means. It means that he, from his hand, through his hand, comes good times and adversity. Trouble. He permits trouble sometimes because he has a greater purpose than just our happiness. And that's a hard one to understand because I wish he was about my happiness all the time, right? But if he was just about my happiness, would I ever move from shallow to mature? Would I ever move from shallow to deeper? Probably not. When things are always going our way, we don't have to develop at all. But when things challenge us, when we get pushed or challenged or go, do we have to, we have to grow or else? And so he's saying here is that that's happening now. Again, I don't know about you, but that's not my expectation. My expectation is, God, I'll do this, you do this. If I keep my nose clean, you'll take all those troubles away, you'll stop them, won't you? That's the expectation. We walk around like that. So when something intrudes or invades our lives, we go, what? Because we have certain expectations. But I want you to notice that some of the people in the Bible learn to let God adjust their expectations. Job is an interesting person to me. I don't know if you've ever read the 42 chapters of that book. It's not an easy book to read, but man, is it powerful. And Job, the Bible tells us, was not only the wealthiest guy in the land, but he was also the most righteous. He had a spiritual sensitivity you can pick up on the first few chapters. And he really cared about his kids knowing God, as well as his family and himself. But notice what happened is is that uh, after a conversation between Satan and God, Satan was able to take all 10 of his kids and all his wealth in one day. And God allowed that. He permitted that. And that's, whew, that's a mystery. And so what, what's going on? Well, how does Job respond? Now look at Job in Job 1, 21, 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. He just broke him. But notice the next two words. Would you read them with me? And worshiped. It didn't mean he understood. It just means that he continued to worship God, even though he didn't understand. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. In other words, I, 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 I had nothing when I came into this world. And naked, I shall return. 
the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Notice what he says. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Hmm. Remember what we learned last week about name? Blessed be the name of the Lord. It means blessed be the character of the Lord. He blessed, he still believed in the good character of God, even though these things had happened. Interesting. Job 2, 9 through 10. The next thing that happened is that his health was permitted to be taken away, and his body was covered with boils from head to toe. And his wife, she's just, she's at a breaking point, as you can imagine. So here's what she says to him. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. You can feel the bitterness in her spirit. He replied, you're talking like one of the foolish women. There's a group of people that didn't necessarily believe in God. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? That's a verse, by the way, that's worth meditating on right there. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. In other words, look at his expectation. He doesn't say, look, I'll be righteous. You stop all the bad stuff. He goes, look, you're God. I'm not. I should not always expect good and not trouble to be permitted through your hand. I don't understand this, but oh, what a different kind of perspective. What a mature perspective compared to mine. And it just stretches us, doesn't it? Look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. This is some other verses to meditate on. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Humbling, isn't it? So notice these things. Now, I want to read verses 15 through 22 next. And I want to just wrestle with some of this a little bit more. Would you read, uh, follow along with me as I read it? It says, in this meaningless life of mine, remember we, we realized this does not mean that life has no meaning. What it means is vapor, mist. In this short-lived, fleeting life of mine, he's writing, I have seen both of these. Remember, he's talking about what he sees under the sun. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, in this next section, what he talks about, I just summed it up this way, is three realities. Let me just spell those out for you if you're following along. He says, as I look around, I see the righteous die, he says. In other words, I see the righteous die in the midst of doing their righteousness. Huh. While the wicked, this is the second one, while the wicked live on. And so in this first line, we see the first two. I see the righteous die. That doesn't seem fair. I see the wicked live on. Huh. And even prosper sometimes. Go figure. That does not seem fair. 
The third thing he says, though, is in the next line. No one always does right and never sins. Here's the third thing I saw, this hard reality. No one always does right and never sins. In other words, we are not the way we are supposed to be. None of us. The Bible teaches us in other places. All of us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of you know uh, that G.K. Chesterton is an amazing author in England. And so the London Times newspaper asked a few authors to contribute on the topic of what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton submitted the briefest response. He wrote, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Is it just out there? Is it just other people? Is it just situations to understand? No, no, no. What's wrong with the world, in part, is me. I don't do what's right every time in my marriage. I don't do what's right every day when I interact with people. I, too, am part of the problem. And this is a mystery that's super hard to swallow because I really like the version of myself that impresses myself. But that's not reality. And so what do we do? How do we come to terms with this? And Solomon says, I'm pushing you. I'm goading you. What do you do when you see those things? Because those things bother me. They get my attention. But notice he goes on and gives some advice about two foolish responses and three wise responses. Let me talk about the foolish responses that he mentions in verse 16 and 17. He says, you know, don't be over-righteous, over-wise. And then he says, but also don't be over-wicked. Now, some people go, okay. I'll just live in the middle. Every once in a while, I'll go to church and give God his due, maybe throw a little in the offering plate, and then other times during the week, I will sin it up. But I won't go crazy. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of people think he's saying that. That's not what he's saying. So here's the meaning of both those words, if you're ready. One, don't be self-righteous. That's a foolish response to be self-righteous. Or self-indulgent. The two foolish responses, if you and I decide when we see unfair things or when we see things that bother us, we can say, okay, now I'll just be a better person. I'll be self-righteous and I will do all kinds of good works and therefore God will be obligated to be impressed and reward me. The other mistake that people make is to go, you know, who cares? It makes no difference anymore. So I'm just going to like throw caution to the wind and live any old way I want. Self-indulgent. Self-righteous, self-indulgent. Philip Ryken does a really good job summarizing this, so let me read what he says. Solomon warns us not to, take, uh, not to be self-righteous. We should not think that trying to be more righteous will save us on the day of judgment. Nor should we think that we are so righteous that we do not deserve to suffer any adversity, that it is unfair for someone like us ever to have a crook in our lot, When we think too highly of ourselves, resting on our own righteousness, then it is easy for us to say, I don't deserve to be treated like this. Doesn't God know who I am? It is also a very short step from there to saying, who does God think he is? So Solomon cautions us not to be, as it were, too righteous. In saying this, he is warning against a conceited righteousness that stands ready to challenge God for his failure to reward us as much as we think we deserve. This is not to say that we should be unrighteous, of course. 
Solomon warns against this mistake in verse 17 when he tells us not to be too wicked. His point is not that it is okay for us to be a little wicked, as if there were some acceptable level of iniquity. When it comes to sin, even a little is too much. His point, rather, is that there is a great danger in giving ourselves over to evil. It is one thing to sin from time to time, as everyone does, but there is a world of difference between committing the occasional sin and making a deliberate decision to pursue a lifestyle of theft, deception, lust, and greed. Don't be a fool, Solomon is saying. If you live in sin, you will perish. So there are two dangers. One is a temptation for the religious person, self-righteousness. The other is even more of a temptation for the non-religious person, unrighteousness. Both of these errors will lead to destruction. They may even lead to an untimely death. But there is a way to avoid both these dangers, and that is to live in the fear of God. Now let me just talk to you about the wise responses that he talks about here. And I want to, before I go further to do that, let me just remind you of some things I've shared in the past. Let's just say that you don't buy what we're talking about here. Let's just say you go, I'm going to live the way I want to live. This world makes no sense. Therefore, and since there's no guarantees, I'm going for what I want to do in my life. I'm going to go after pleasure. I'm going to go after my own selfish desires. Okay? Let's just say you decide to do that. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I love this quote. Virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings fog. When you and I decide to go deeper and deeper into self-indulgence, what will happen is we may think we're getting smarter, but actually things will get more foggy. The The world will actually get more confusing. And so just remember that. But also remember that there are consequences to your actions and mine. Just remember that. We still live in a world of consequences, even though we're trying to get rid of them. So I've shared this before with you. A wise mentor of mine shared this with me years ago. I'll share it again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. And I've also added this little thing in my own mind when I say it. And it will break God's heart and hurt other people around me more than words can say. There are consequences, friends. So just keep those in mind. And don't be a fool. Don't be unwise, the Bible says. Now, what are the wise responses? Like, how do we not go that way of being overly righteous, overly wicked? What what is the, the answer here? Well, first, Solomon says, if you're following along, is enjoy in prosperity. In other words, enjoy your life when you're going through times of prosperity. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There are actually a whole bunch of small, precious gifts in life that are passing some of us by. And the reason it's passing some of us by is either because we're moving too fast or because we expect God to just keep it coming, keep it coming, that we don't enjoy them. We don't say, that's a good gift from the hand of God. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for the ability to see colors. Thank you for the ability to hear or thank you for the ability, whatever it might be, simple things for this person or that opportunity. The second thing, though, is to trust in adversity. This is the second piece of wise advice that we're finding in this chapter and other places. Trust in times of adversity. Trust God. But here's the third one, and here's the biggie in the next line. Fear God. Fear God. Notice how that will help us avoid all extremes. He's saying, you want to be a wise person? Fear God. 
When we hear fear God, we go, oh, does that mean we get, need to be afraid he's going to hammer us one? Does that mean that he's like, you know, just can't wait to, to, to sock us one? No, no, no. Fear of God has a purity to it, a healthiness to it. And so here's what it means. It means to trust and acknowledge him with our ways. It means to trust and acknowledge him with our ways. I've shared with you before, some of you that know me well know that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has been a lifeline for me. It's been some of the wisest counsel in scripture that I've ever put to memory. And I recommend you do the same, but here it is on the screen. We have it there. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't mean kiss your brains goodbye. It just means don't lean on them as the ultimate source. In all your ways, submit to him or acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. This idea, again, of God, God has his ability to straighten what's crooked and also that he can guide us in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will do something with your ways and with your paths if you'll trust and acknowledge him as God. Years ago, when Saturday Night Live first started, Chevy Chase was one of the, he, he spent one year on that show, and he would start his introduction to his little news segment the same way every time. Uh, good evening, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. And I believe in these situations, part of fearing God is saying, you're God, and I'm not. If I were to be in your presence right now, God, your righteousness, your holiness, your goodness, your truth, your character would literally knock me to the ground because of my imperfection, my smallness compared to your greatness. You are that kind of person. You're God, and I'm not. And so what does it mean to acknowledge him and trust him in all our ways and with our ways? What does that look like for you? What ways right now is there? That, that's where the rub point is. That's where the challenge is. I was thinking about some of the ways that seem unfair. And I wrote down, you know, a number of different things this morning. And I, I just remember thinking to be overlooked for a promotion or to lose your job when you're least expecting it. To literally be bullied at school just for no reason at all. To see the death of a child or a young person. To see mass killings like happened in Las Vegas to see what happens in betrayals of marriages or wayward kids when they've been raised to believe in God. All different kinds of situations. We could talk about sexual abuse. We could talk about molestation. We could talk about all kinds of ways that people take advantage of each other. And those things seem so unfair, so wrong. What do you do when you face those mysteries in life? The Bible says the wisest thing you can do is to fear God and say, you're God and I'm not and somehow in this adversity, show me how to trust you and acknowledge you as God. When I think of the fear of God, I think of Job. Job, for me, offers a model, not just because of the two passages I read to you earlier, because if we stop there, we'll miss the larger story. So if you're following along, here's what I want to suggest this morning, is that with Job, not Job, but with Job, we admit, surrender, and bless God's name. With Job, we admit, surrender, and bless God's name. What happened? After Job went through those devastating losses, he had one more challenge. And they were called three friends. And they showed up and were great for about seven days. And then they opened their mouths and began to say some of the stupidest things to him. 
but things that many of us would be tempted to say to try and fix him too. And unfortunately, some of the same things Job's friends said to him are still on Christian bookshelves today. They basically said, oh, you clearly disobeyed God. That's why you're going through this. And he's going, look, look, I know I'm not, you know, perfect, but I'm not sure that's the connection here. In other words, I want to make sure you know, I don't believe all suffering in this world is related to sin. My sin or yours, sometimes it's somebody else's sin or it's the fall. But here's the deal. What happened is, is he's going through all this and he cries out to God. He, he admits the pain of what he's going through. He doesn't deny it. And sometimes Christians think, you just go, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. No, it's not like that. He said that from a deep place. But it wasn't denying. He admitted both that he didn't understand his limitations, but he also admitted the pain. And if you want to fear God, that does not mean denying what's going on and acting like it's not there. It's pouring your heart out to God. Friends, sometimes the only way to get through the mysteries is just to say, I don't understand. God, I'm angry right now. I am so confused. I am so mad. I'm so... Ugh. And God wants us to pour out our hearts to him like Job did. But when we've done that, at some point we're going to have to say, and I surrender my right to you explaining this to me. I surrender my right to control my life. And I bless your name. I bless your character. Because I know that's still true. And Job went through that. And several times throughout that letter, if you ever study it, it is so powerful. One of the things he says in there is he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The Lord knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I know that my Redeemer lives, he said, all through this pain, all through this dark, dark time. Eventually, he says, oh, if I could just have an audience with God. And God finally gives him one in chapters 39 through 42. And he says, all right, Job, you've been asking all kinds of questions. I've got a few for you. Were you there when I created the world? Do you know where they keep the snow? Do you know where lightning comes from? On and on and on. And Job gets to the end. And he says, surely I spoke about things I did not know or understand. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I repent in dust and ashes, he says. And God shows him. Job realizes he now sees clearly that he did not see clearly. He realized there was more going on than meets the eye. And he worshiped God in the middle of not understanding. And you and I can too, if we're willing. That is when the rubber really hits the road. So notice this. I'll say one more thing is that here's the good news before we take communion. Aren't you glad that Ecclesiastes 7 isn't the end of the book? Anybody else glad? Look at verse 23. Let me just read it to you. Solomon says this, all this I tested by wisdom. And I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Oh, a truer word was never said. What was beyond where he lived right now was what God has done and is doing. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. Henry Blackaby tells of a time that he was going through with his daughter having cancer. 
And he said the whole time he was tempted to say, God must not love me because he's allowing this. But then he was reminded that God had forever settled his love for us with his son on the cross. And he said from that point on, he determined to never pray or to look at any of his hard situations in life, including with his daughter, without seeing the cross behind it. And he said that's when he was able to face the hardest things because he knew that beyond what he was facing, God has done something that goes beyond that, that can help us live in it with the mysteries. And Jesus understands whatever you and I have gone through at a level that would blow our minds. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Bless his name. Bless his character. God did not leave us to this broken world without an answer. And so how do we respond? How do we respond? First, here's a question just to ask yourself where you are today. Am I on the why God path or the what can I learn path? Am I on the why God path or the what can I learn path? If you're on the why God path right now, please don't hear me rushing you through that. There's nothing wrong with asking God why. But if you insist on asking God why and never get off that path, you may never get an answer. And you may never move forward. You may become bitter instead of better. But if you're willing to say, God, I don't understand and I still wonder why, but I'm asking you, what can I learn? What can I know about you in this time? You have the potential to move forward at that point. A man sent me this email after last Sunday's message. He said, in Tony Dungy, the coach, the guy that's on Saturday, Sunday night football, Tony Dungy's book, Quiet Strength, contains a paragraph that really opened my eyes, this friend wrote. He wrote this shortly after his 18-year-old son, Jamie, hung himself. Some of you know that Tony is a devout Christian. So here's what Tony wrote. Why do bad things happen? I don't know. Why did Jamie die? I don't know. But I do know that God has the answers. I know he loves me, and I know he has a plan, whether it makes sense to me or not. Rather than asking why, I'm asking what. What can I learn from this? What can I do for God's glory? And what can I do to help others? And I think that Tony Dungy still misses his son every day. But I think he's been able to move forward with God's power and grace because he was willing to still trust God's name, his character. So this last question, here's how I'd like to close before we take communion. Where is God inviting me to trust and praise him still? Where is God inviting me to trust and praise him still? I um, last week talked about work, school, home, friendships, dating, situations. I'm not sure what it might be, but where, where's the rub for you? Where do you see unfairness and you're wrestling with becoming bitter instead of better and wiser? Where might it be? And we're going to take communion now as a reminder that the Lord cares about what we're going through enough to get completely involved in our lives with his son. But I want to show you one thing that has helped me and then we'll move to communion. A few years ago, about 30 actually, 
I was listening on the radio one day when a program came on. I think it was focused on the family. And, and James Dobson said, I want to share with you a message today from a black pastor named Dr. E.V. Hill out in Los Angeles. He said this is the funeral service for his wife of 32 years. Her name was Janie, but he called her baby. And uh, if you want to Google this, you know, that was the day. I remember I pulled my car off the side of the road, and I have to get this message after I listened to it. But digital's changed everything, you know, now. You know, and so if you Google or go to E.V. Hill preaching his wife's funeral and listen to that, and if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, that's fine. If you just want to listen to the last 10 minutes, all you do is pick part two. But here's the interesting thing, is what he shares there is that when his wife was dying of cancer, he went into the chapel and said, God, if you were a mayor, I could talk to you. If you were a governor, I could talk to you. If you were the president of the United States, I've talked to a few of those. But you're God. I just need to pour my heart out to you. He said he did that, and he said he got up, and two words came to his mind. Trust me. Trust me. He said, I thought that meant that God was going to heal her. But that's not what the Spirit was saying. He says, if I take her, will you trust me? And he said, that is the message that God gave him again and again. He said, just wait. Just wait till you see what I do. Consider what God has done, friends. Here at communion, consider what God has done for us. We can trust him. Now, would you bow your head with me and just pray, God, as we get ready to take communion, Wherever we find ourselves today, will you use this time of communing with you to really communion with you? If it means pouring out our hearts and admitting our limitations or our anger or frustration or confusion, help us to do that during communion. At the same time, help us remember that nothing can separate us from your love because of what you did on the cross. And to just freshly express our trust to you and praise you. Amen.